let me confess to you that 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14 is a short unit of text. And I really think that the, the, the larger section here, and this is my original intent, was to teach uh, 12 through 19. Uh, there are really two schools of thought to that. One is uh, the mind can only absorb what the bottom can endure. And so there's, there's certainly that thing going on. And then there's the other thing that I, I can't dig down as deep as I'd like to when the passage gets to be that long. Um, narrative, you're telling a story, it's got to be that long. But these short little units of thought, for me, I work a little bit better. Let me drill down on some things I think are important for us to hear and apply to our lives. So that's why I shortened it. But I want, I want you to understand that the bigger unit here is 12 through 19. And so that's what I'm going to read. I'm going to read 12 through 19, but what we're going to look at, journey through this morning, is 12 through 14. So if you find me spilling over onto 15, just begin to clap your hands like this. I'll understand it's time to shut it down, okay? <clears throat> don't, don't actually do that. That'd be supremely distracting. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me read 12 through, uh, 12 through 19. Peter writes and says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Hmm. Seems to be contrary to our, what we're told. Look why he ties it. He says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory in God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19, to close it out. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. At the heart of what he gets at here in 12 through 19 is really the idea of suffering as a Christian and of what it is to be united with the name of Christ. But when I begin to think, you know, why is suffering such a difficult thing for us to, to get at, to understand, to accept, in some sense, it makes sense in my mind anyway that a lot of this goes back to uh, kind of our experience, what we see around us and our upbringing, what it was like for us growing up. And so you're growing up, your, your kid endures difficulty. Uh, most of us look to do what? Alleviate that difficulty. And so there's a bully in their classroom. What do we want to do? We want to insulate them around that bully. And, and, and rightly so. Like, I'm not saying, you need to let them stand up for themselves. You put them on the front line, and you let that kid give them nuggies and flush their head in the toilet until they like it. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I mean, as parents, our job, one of our jobs is to look after, to care for, to protect our children. And so when we see our kids in difficult situations, to a certain degree, we want to we step in. We want to alleviate that. We want to care for and protect our kids. And so when our kids have somebody speak down to them and be ugly to them, there's this sense in there that, that this is just wrong. I can remember one of the first times Bryce came back into the house, and, and I think one of our neighbors had said something, or maybe it was a cousin had said something to him, and he, he, he was just broken. He said, why would he be ugly to me? Why would he be ugly to me? 
So we step in and we, we work to fix that. We work to alleviate that. We work to help them to understand why. Well, you grow up and you move through and we recognize bullying is, is not tolerated in any school, right? Make it into the workplace. Bullying isn't tolerated in the workplace. You can, you can you know, be sued for any number of things. You say something the wrong way to someone. You, you think the wrong way about someone anymore. And so we are hyper-insulating as a culture ourselves against oppression and suffering. And so this, this, this idea we've been conditioned to from our upbringing, our, our culture really buys into it, the idea of we want to insulate people, we want to make sure that no one can be offended by anything. No one can be offended by anything. And so our views are not able to be exclusivistic because, because that's offensive to somebody. But herein we recognize there is this, this radical departure in Christianity that effectively what we're going to see in this passage, he says, when you suffer, when you're reviled, when you suffer in the name of Christ, this is good. But when we say, but my upbringing says when somebody's ugly to me that this is not good. This is something I want to avoid. In the workplace, if somebody were harassing to me, they could be fired. This is not good. And But what we find out in terms of being a Christian and walking through the Christian life, when somebody is ugly to you, rude to you, mean to you, demeaning to you, reviles you, seeks to oppress you, listen to this, on the basis of your unification with Christ and faith, this for you is good. This for you is good. Completely contrary to what we see around us. Completely contrary to the way we raise our children, to the way that we engage with so much of society. But in terms of your Christianity, the oppression you face, this for you is good. Do you believe it? I would submit that that many of us respond in exactly the way that Peter calls us to reject. Many of us find ourselves moving and facing oppression and being a Christian in exactly the way that Peter calls us to reject. And so there's this retuning of our hearts that needs to take place, whereby we move not in accordance with the way we've been raised, what we see in society, but we move in accordance with what we see Scripture calling us to. Amen? Come on now. That was weak. Amen? There you go. There you go. Look how he begins. He writes to them, and he says, Beloved, Now let's just stop right there. I want you to understand this. We can never hear this enough. You are absolutely loved, beheld, and found to be beautiful by God. You are absolutely loved and found to be beautiful by God inasmuch as you are united with Jesus. So God doesn't just look at you and say, what a lovely white-haired old lady. She's wonderful. She bakes cookies for everybody in the community, and my love rests upon her. This may be true of you, but God's love rests upon you in your unification, commitment, tie to Jesus. And as such, Peter absolutely is able to write to this community who's suffering oppression, suffering difficulty, being increasingly marginalized in their community, and say to them, you are beloved. Can I tell you this morning that inasmuch as you don't feel particularly recognize or have these warm fuzzies in your stomach, that is not an indication that God does not love you. Perhaps what that is is an indication that you are not tapped into his love for you in the present. And there are any, re- any number of reasons why that may be. But as Peter writes this group, his address to them is to refer to them as being those beloved by God. 
That's an identity that we need to understand and assume more often for ourselves. Because it's in this understanding of being loved by God that he calls them in to do something radically difficult. You are not the tolerated. You are not the endured. You are not the put up with. But as you sit here today, your union with Jesus, you are beloved. And it's from this place of love that God calls you to do something radically difficult. Look what he says. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But this is what it is for most of us. We encounter difficulty and it's like this slap across the face. It's this knee-jerk reaction. There's this sense of this thing shouldn't be so. It shouldn't be happening this way. I've been nothing but kind, loving, and gracious to everybody around me. Why am I being maligned? And Peter's word to us here is the same word he used back in 4.4. Look back in chapter 4, verse 4. Speaking of those who are engaged in, in sinful behavior, he said, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. And so your non-Christian friends, the people you used to go out and, and, and the way he paints it here, just get into all kinds of, of terrible behaviors with, drunk, drunken parties, all this kind of thing. This is, this is their way of life formally before Christ. And they're no longer a part of that. And some of us, we'd say, this was my former way of life, but I'm no longer a part of that. And on the basis of their departure from immorality, they're maligned. And on the basis of their gathering with their non-Christian friends, their non-Christian friends are surprised when they don't do it. They're like, man, you have the record for keg stands. You are the guy that's like gripping the keg upside down and you could guzzle and guzzle and guzzle and we thought there was no end of the beer you could consume. I mean, when it came to funneling, you were the man. We ran out of money buying so much beer because you could drink so much. This was incredible. And you're saying you want Perrier. What's up with that? Come on now. And what he's painting here is this picture of our former way, way of life and our current way of life bear no similarities with one another. And just as surprised they are that we no longer engage in the craven, uh, lost, debased way of existence that was formerly us, so too we're surprised when they malign us. We're surprised, we're shocked. In some sense, what we have created is this sense of of ease that we expect to just kind of permeate every walk in existence in every relationship we ever encounter. We've gotten soft. So when we encounter difficulty, when we encounter resistance, we encounter persecution, we recoil. I said, this isn't, this isn't how it's supposed to be for me. Our, our country's supposed to enjoy uh, freedom of religion. I'm supposed to have this free expression. I'm supposed to be protected. And so what we've begun to do, unfortunately is we rely on this, this idea of governmental protection for our viewpoint. We want our government to support our viewpoint. We want our government to put forward our viewpoint when they don't, when increasingly we don't find this to be the case, when increasingly we find ourselves being marginalized, we recoil. We pull back and say, this isn't fair. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. I'm supposed to be high and exalted. We make arguments and say from the founding of this country, this is what we see. We see a heightened Judeo-Christian morality coming in. Why are you seeking to remove that? And so we're making this argument of ontology. We're saying this thing exists, the basis of being in this, 
was that it was the free expression of religion. And so when we find people disagreeing with us and moving against that, we hate it. It feels unnatural to us, doesn't it? Peter's word is don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Don't recoil. Don't view this as an opportunity to disengage and say, oh, I'll just find a a, a more palatable way to expand on Christianity and their wives. I'll find a way that, that it's not offensive, it's not as abrasive. I'll find some way to do this. Friends, don't be surprised. And don't stop living a bold display of Christianity among a world that so desperately needs it. Recognize that people being surprised at your removal from there is a great opportunity for you to testify to the change that Jesus affects in your heart. But yet when you are surprised, when you recoil, when you uh, retreat from their onslaught of persecution towards you, what you're doing is removing your opportunity to engage in conversation with those who disagree. And we recognize that heart change begins with our verbal communication to them, and then the transformation takes place in the role of the Holy Spirit. Do we understand that? So he says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. We still enjoy a tremendous amount of freedom here to engage. And people can malign you and make fun of you and talk bad about you, but yet we still find so much more freedom than so many places in the world. As of July 20th, Russia moved in a completely backwards direction. I don't know how many of you have kind of watched the news on this, but July 20th, it got signed into law in Russia that you can't even have casual conversations about the gospel. You go to a Starbucks in in Red Square, you go uh, somewhere out, and you guys are just at a restaurant, and the guy across from you says, hey, what can you tell me about Christianity? And you start just kind of, I don't know, you know, it's Jesus and whatever. You can be fined. You can be fined up to $760 for that one offense. Now, let me break that down for you. Average rate of, of income for a worker in Russia is $500 a month. So think about how significant that fine is. A fine that is almost one and a half times their monthly income. And that's what they're dealing with. Now, say they're, they're, they're deemed to be a much more egregious affront and into this effort of destabilization, and so they form a Bible study in their home. For that, four to six years prison. Four to six years prison. But when we have somebody and we have them come up and ridicule us for our Christian faith, we recoil? We've gotten soft. We've gotten weak. What this calls us to is a radical engagement. Our cultural changes around us We need to use these to our advantage. There is so much opportunity to engage in gospel-centered conversations today. Why? Because so many people are increasingly moving away from it. If everybody was moving towards the gospel, then these are conversations of revival. But what we see increasingly is people moving away from it. This is our opportunity to engage. The salt is finally becoming salty. The light is finally starting to burn bright. Why? Because of the increase of darkness around us. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. You say, you know, Russia's a long ways away, man. I don't plan to ever go there. I mean, I don't speak the language. Cyrillic's just a super confusing language. You know, when it's written out, I've heard they don't have good food. I mean, whoever wanted to, to, where are you going on a holiday? You going to Florida? No, I'm going to Russia. Like, it just doesn't sound good. It just, it doesn't roll off the tongue like Tampa, Miami. I would go to Miami now. I'm just telling you, Zeke is everywhere. (laughs) 
And so as we, as we look at this and understand, you say, oh, oh, oh this, is, this, is, this is us here, this is Russia over there. Man, California just a couple of weeks ago tried to bring about a bill that would effectively eradicate Christian, uh, higher edu- Christian institutions of higher education. They tried to pass a bill through that would have effectively emaciated Cal Baptist, Biola, Azusa, and I'm not just talking Christian-backed Christian, uh, institutions. If it was an institute of higher education that received any type of, of funding from the federal government, they were going to get rid of chapel. They were going to get rid of any type of confessional statement. They were going to get rid of any type of code of moral conduct. Why? Why? Because increasingly we find that people aren't governed by what Scripture says, but governed by the sense of we don't want to offend anyone. What it created in California was a terrific opportunity to engage in gospel-centered conversations so people weren't recoiling, they weren't being shocked, but it called for, it allowed for more radical engagement in a clarification of opinion. What we see here in Texas is that we have an unbelievable opportunity to engage in gospel-centered conversations in the workplace, in the marketplace, and in our homes and neighborhoods. Amen? We've got to quit being shocked. We've got to quit being surprised. Recognize these things are coming to you. They're going to happen to you. Now, Peter, as he goes through this, understand he, his aim and, and goal isn't to tell you, uh, Ken, this is a good thing that's happening to you because it's going to make you a better person. Have you ever had somebody come up and that's, that's kind of what they say to you? And, and, and it's this trial, it's just going to go through you, but it's going to make you this kind of idea of super Christian. Well, you really see that bust out in James. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, really kind of build this idea. That as these things come through, it is testing your faith. It is making you more mature. That these things have to finish so that your faith can be more tested, more refined, and pure. And you say, yes, on the end. At the beginning, you're saying, no, that road is so long. Can't somebody else walk it? And, and they can make a Hallmark movie, and I can be inspired by their story. I was the younger brother. I do so much better learning from the mistakes of somebody else. Not my mistakes. Please, God, no. That's James. That's our story. Peter's story, the way that he remarks, the way that he look at, looks at it, all he is saying is testing is showing that you are a Christian. Testing is showing that you are a Christian. Testing is showing that the Holy Spirit has done its work in your heart. And testing is good for you because it shows that you are already united to God. Testing for Peter isn't this idea of purification and of stripping away, but is an indication to the Christian that they already belong. Look what he goes on to say. He says, don't, don't be surprised. Don't act like something strange is happening to you, but rejoice, verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. John, the gospel of John, Jesus speaking to the disciples, wanted them to understand kind of what this is to be a follower in faith of Jesus Christ. And you know what he didn't tell them? You know what expressly he never told them? This when I die, everything's going to be awesome for you guys. It's going to be this, the most amazing thing in the world. Everybody's going to recognize that, that I was right, that they were wrong, and, and there's going to be no more suffering and no more pain. He never said that. He never communicated that to any follower of Jesus ever. But unfortunately, this has become the byline of so many bumper stickers. Become a Christian, life's great. 
Life's great in the fast lane. We're on our way to heaven. Like this should never be our understanding because why? This bears no resemblance to what it is to be a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus' words, the Gospel of John, John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. Does that sound loving? Does that sound like something we should put on a bumper sticker for Christianity 101? Hey, guys, you got lots of friends? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to be hated? No. Well, come anyway, because it's great. Come anyway, because it's amazing. Jesus' word to them is that if you find the world hating you, you find it disinterested in you, maligning you, marginalizing you, this is fine. Why? Because it hated me first. Jesus is not leading us to walk in a course in a manner of life that he has not gone ahead of. Do you understand that? That's the difference. He's not calling us as Christians to engage and to head on this course and manner of life that says, you guys just head down this road. You tell me how it is. I'll meet you in heaven. No. What we see is that Jesus goes in this course in his manner. He endures terrific difficulty. And what does he do? He calls us to join him in that pursuit. The world hates you. It's okay. It's hated me before you. Look what he says. Verse 19, he says, If the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In some sense, to be united with Christ is to have the hatred of the world on your shoulders. Why? Because you're united with Christ. Verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They kept my word, they'll also keep yours. To be united with Jesus is to expect suffering. This is news for some of us. This is desperate, shocking, terrible news for some of us. And I'm sorry. And I, I, I'm sorry. Like if you, if you grew up in the church and you've never heard that, you've never had that communicated to you, and the first time you endure suffering and difficulty, you should be shocked. You should be dismayed. Because it was never instructed to you, it was never imparted to you that this, what it is, this is what it is to be a Christian. But friend, if you know this, if you've heard this, if you've grown up around this, if this is your understanding, but yet you still recoil, pull back, and don't, don't lean in and become more engaged, then shame on you. What Peter calls us to understand within his line of this is that the only action on the part of the Christian is increased engagement in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we face difficulty, we lean in all the more. When we face suffering, we lean in all the more. When we face hardship, we lean in all the more. Look at the radical thing he calls us to here. He says, but rejoice. 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 Now, what he calls us in this understanding of rejoice, is it this stupid, vapid sense of of being silly and and glad and running around like an idiot? I'm so happy I suffered. This is just so amazing. Everybody join me. What he calls us to is this understanding and tapping into the radical love of God. What does he address us as? Beloved. And being addressed as beloved and having this understanding that our identities have been completely transformed by God, that our identity identity is solely found in the person of Jesus, that shift, that change of heart allows us then to rejoice. Sometimes our rejoicing is quiet. It's not boisterous. It's not always boasting. Sometimes what it is 
is this quiet sense of resolve because you recognize the radical union you have with Jesus and that nothing is able to shake or separate it. It says rejoice. But look at what he says here. Our rejoicing is tied to the sufferings of Jesus. Our rejoicing is tied to the suffering of Jesus. The apostles in Acts chapter 5 endured some suffering. They were brought, bef- brought before the courts. They were imprisoned. Angel came and let them out, and they go back into the temple. They begin to communicate the gospel once again. The high priest calls them in, and he argues with them that they need to shut their mouths. They need to stop these things. They need to cease and desist, effectively. No longer engage in radical Christianity. No longer engage in obedience. Look what happens in verse 40 of chapter 5 in the book of Acts. It says, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They beat them and they let them go. And what do we find the apostles doing next? Are they out saying, you know, I thought Jesus was just kind of on that day uh, when he was talking about if the world hates you. I thought that was a joke. I wrote in my journal, Jesus told a really funny joke. If the world hates us, it made no sense to me. He was for real serious. We just got the tar beat out of us back there. We don't find them doing that. Instead, look at what we find them doing in verse 41. It says, then they left the presence of the council doing what? Rejoicing. They were beaten. They were cast out. And they rejoiced. Look at why they rejoiced. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. When you suffer as a Christian, I want you to recognize something. God has looked at you, Chase. He's looked at you, Shane. He's looked at you, Melissa. He's looked at you. And when you suffer for his name, he has found you worthy to suffer for his name. And in that sense of worth, that you are able to stand for Jesus, you can rejoice in that. You can rejoice in that because God's good pleasure rests on you, recognizing that you are the person he put in the place at the right time to suffer for him, to suffer for his name, so that he might be glorified and so that your life might stand as a testimony to all those around you who did not, uh, were not deemed worthy by God to stand up and give that same testimony. It's an amazing thing that God would step into any of our lives, look at us, and say, Kyla, you are worthy to suffer for my name. John, you are worthy to suffer for my name. Harry, you are worthy to suffer for my name. James, you are worthy to suffer for my name. What an amazing thing that is. And that absolutely terrifies me. I don't sit in my office during the week. I don't go out and engage in conversations. We don't go on these mission trips looking for opportunities to suffer for Jesus. But when we're there, when we have that opportunity, when you feel yourself stand when all you want to do is sit, when you hear yourself speak when all you want to do is be quiet, recognize this. You're rejoicing in that moment. And God has given you student. God has given you teacher. God has given you mom, dad, husband, father, neighbor. God has given each of us opportunities to suffer for his name. Are you willing? Are you willing? 
Look what he goes on to say in this last bit of 14. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. We rejoice, recognize we're blessed. Why are we blessed? You're blessed in this suffering because the spirit of the glory and of God rests upon you. Christian, you suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ is an indication of your salvation. Do you understand how this works? When we see ourselves suffering well for the gospel, this is an indication not of God's displeasure with you, but but of his spirit resting upon you. Isaiah links this in some sense in Isaiah 11 too in this discussion of Jesus and the spirit of God resting upon the coming Messiah. And Peter borrows that language to here and he applies it to the Christian. God's spirit rests on you and it is an indication of God's good pleasure in you. That's what's happening in suffering. It's this opportunity for you to testify to the goodness of the gospel and it's an opportunity to you to confirm for you of God's good pleasure and of his salvation resting in you and in your life. Have you ever thought about suffering that way? That in suffering as a Christian, suffering for the gospel, that it's God communicating to you that you are saved. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 Speaking of the Holy Spirit, he says, he says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Look what the Spirit does. He says, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sealing us in salvation. And then the Holy Spirit is also this guarantor. He says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What we recognize in Christian suffering it should not be shunned. We should rejoice when it happens. And in this, we are blessed because it's the testimony of God to the surety of our salvation. We've become a people who, who avoid suffering. The society of anonymous Christians engaging in cultural Christianity, living in the Bible Belt South. These days are coming to an end. Increasingly, there will be opportunities for each of us to engage in a bold display of the gospel, and it will be suffering. And you will not have to ask yourself, was that suffering? Because some of us will lose our families, some of us will lose our jobs, some of us will lose our homes. Standing for the gospel. I want to read to you an excerpt from Adniram Judson as we close. Judson's this wonderful story of really a a kind of a militant agnostic atheist, this guy who doesn't believe in God or not sure that there's a God, but he's fairly certain that it's just a hoax. Doesn't believe at all. And then God radically transforms his heart and calls him to this amazing display of faith and trust in Jesus. And Judson in the early 19th century begins this course and he wants to be the first American missionary to Burma. He wants to go where Jesus has not been named. He wants to go where nobody's had any success. Nobody's uh, really been able to live there very long. Why? Because they die. They go, they stand for the gospel. They are killed. They contract a disease. They die. And so Judson, and if if you're a young man in here and you want to propose to a woman, don't take this approach. Just know that that's uh, kind of the caveat. Judson wants to be married. He wants to be married to a woman named Anne. And so he, he writes a letter to Anne's father. And so you'd imagine that he'd say, I will do my utmost to protect your daughter, to keep her safe. I will die before she dies. I mean, 
I, I, this is very much the same conversation I had with Valerie's mom and stepdad and then her dad and stepmom uh, before I was able to secure her hand in marriage. Something similar. Anyway, and so you'd think that that would be kind of the tenor, the nature of his correspondence to the man who has the right of refusal. But his Christianity was not soft. His understanding the plan and providence of God was not emaciated and anemic. This is what he wrote. As he wrote to her father, he says, I have now to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. And we'd say, to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to see her departure to a heathen land, her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent? Can you consent to all this for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in the hope to the soon meeting of your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from the heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Can you consent? And the question God asks us today is will we be faithful Will we be faithful to the gospel? Will we be faithful to respond? Will we be those who are shocked or those who receive, rejoice, and are blessed? Let me pray for us. And I confess, that I confess to you that there are times when I recognize that I have been shocked that I have been terrified, that I have been afraid, that I have resisted, that I have kept myself from suffering I knew that you had laid up for me. God, I recognize that in the room this size, there are likely others who that is their same story. They had opportunities to stand for the gospel, but they sat and were quiet. They got up, they walked out of the room to avoid conversations, to avoid outing themselves. God, would you give us a sense of your forgiveness by the power of your spirit for those opportunities when we did not stand? God, I do not ask for courage, but I ask for a deeper reliance on your spirit in our lives. Help us to be more humble, more broken, and more weak because in our weakness, we're strong in you. God, help us to be those winsome, loving Christians who carefully, lovingly, and faithfully Extend the gospel to all those who disagree with us. Help us not to be those boastful braggarts, the hateful who would stand and decry someone else's sincerely held belief, but help us to be those instead who contend with them, contend for their souls with your gospel. God, would you move in our midst this morning? Would you stir in our hearts? And God, we expect... We ask especially that you would be with those who have yet to surrender their lives to you. That their first bold stand for the gospel would be in their surrendering to you. They would surrender their intellect. They would surrender their will. That they would run headlong into your arms of love, recognizing that you sent your son Jesus to lead the way. That our good brother Jesus 
that he took on sin and death, that because of his sin and death and resurrection that we are not under the weight of our sin, the weight of our misgivings, our misdeeds, but we are able to be united with you forevermore to receive from you the forgiveness of our sins. So God, we pray especially for those who get to surrender their lives to you, that you would move in their hearts and you would call them to union with you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.